Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Shemaine Amin. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're gonna to be chatting with one of our members in Egypt and are pleased to be joined by Dr. Amir Ibrahim, a partner at Ibrashi and Dermarkar. Welcome to the program, Dr. Amir. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you so much, Shima. How are you today? Doing very well, thank you. Dr. Amir, we're really looking forward to getting your insights on the impact that competition laws have on the labor market. To kick us off, can you perhaps shed some light on this baseline question, which is, why is competition law concerned with the labor market? Well, let me let me tell you first that competition law is a law governing the rule of supply and demand in different markets and labor market included. As any market is prone to monopoly, also labor market might be prone to monopoly and therefore competition intervention might be needed because not in all occasions labor law can resolve employees' access to the labor market and therefore competition law is here to ensure fair and non-discriminatory but as well as choices to the employees wishing to join the labor market and in that sense competition law fulfill a very important social goal alongside the labor law and there is also a very particular economic reason that exists on the demand side of the labor market that actually invites competition authorities and competition laws to intervene in these markets. On the demand side, labor market or labor will be considered as an input where employers buy labor. Therefore, there may be employers with large market power that are able to pay workers less than the competitive level by hiring fewer workers. Additionally, there is monopsony in labor input markets also when the employer i.e. the buyer of labor, has the ability to diminish employees' benefits or worsening the employment terms and conditions, mainly by reducing the number of employees or potentially also driving wages below competitive levels. In that sense, employer can also create a monopsony situation when they enter into anti-competitive agreements that aim to reduce wages or workers' ability to seek other employers. A number of competition authority actually in the United States and Europe recently investigated these practices such as wage fixing and no poaching agreement and we will be getting I think to this into more uh, details. Alternatively also in merger proceedings competition authority became aware that merger and acquisition may contribute to increase employer market powers and we have seen a landmark case from the Egyptian Competition Authority and the Comissa Competition uh, Commission in this area when they uh, respectively considered the impact of the Uber acquisition of its rival uh, Karim in the different market involved in the Comissa uh, region. Dr. Amir, thank you for that very interesting and, and important introduction to these topics. On the flip side, I'm, I'm curious as to whether you can shed some light on some of the benefits that you think competition law can have in the labor markets. 
Yes, uh, competition law, as I said, can greatly enhance work conditions for different types of employees by ensuring that they are protecting against practices that limit their access to the labor market. It also ensures that uh, the redistribution of resources between employers and employees based on actual market conditions. It creates better choices for employees in terms of wages, work conditions, and benefits. And it also helps employers to access more skilled labor and to choose those that best meet their needs. And actually, competition law is also aware that there is an indirect benefit in facilitating such benefit to the final consumers, i.e. the consumer of the employers. Consumer can gain from competition among employers because a more competitive workforce may create more or better goods and services. And on the flip side, do you think that there are other employment practices that perhaps may be challenged from a competition law perspective, if you could highlight some of those for us? Competition authorities around the world actually were capable to highlight three main practices that may affect a competitive labor market, which are wage fixing and no coaching agreements and other collusive practices. The second is abuses of employer monopsony power, and finally, concentration of labor input markets through mergers and acquisitions. Thank you, Dr. Amer. And, you know, as we've discussed some of these practices that, that may be challenged, I think our listeners would also benefit to hear a bit more about some of the practices that are permitted under the competition laws and perhaps those that aren't subject to regulations that are astringent. Thank you for this question. As a general rule, competition law does not apply to collective bargaining agreement between employers and employees for the purpose of improving working and employment condition. In the EU, for example, this was confirmed by the famous landmark Albany case decided by the European Court of Justice. In the US, Section 6 of the Clayton Act confirms the same. However, such exclusion does not extend to self-employed individuals that qualify as enterprises, nor typically to any collective agreements between workers that is not aimed at improving working or employment conditions. For example, it was ruled that members of the liberal professions do not enjoy the same exclusion and their agreements, such as those, for example, determining minimum fees requirements, cannot escape competition scrutiny. In Norwegian Federation of Trade Union versus the Norwegian Association of Local and Regional Authorities, the European Court decided that provisions in a collective bargaining agreement which pursues objective externals to, the, to that improving condition of work and employment could amount to an infringement of competition law. So, as a general rule, the application of competition law on the supply side of the labor market, i.e. the employee side of the labor market, benefit from a greater scope of exclusion but again liberal professions in particular does not benefit at all from it for the reason that they are qualified as independent enterprises on the demand side however that is the labor input market where employers buy labor there are no exclusion as such but for a very limited area of practices usually associated with merger and acquisition that is because Firms that compete to hire or retain employees are competitors in the employment marketplace, regardless of whether the firm makes the same products or compete to provide the same services. It is generally unlawful for competitors to expressly or implicitly agree not to compete with one another. 
even if they are motivated by a desire to reduce costs. Therefore, HR personnel and professionals should take steps to ensure that interactions with other employers competing with them for employees do not result in an unlawful agreement not to compete on terms of employment. Just to unpack that last point a little bit further regarding HR professionals and their interactions with other employers, to what extent can discussions between HR personnel of competing entities fall within the remit of the competition laws? First of all, an HR professional should avoid entering into agreements regarding terms of employment with firms that compete to hire employees. It does not matter whether the agreement is informal or formal, written or unwritten, spoken or unspoken. An individual likely is breaking the antitrust law if he or she agrees with individual at another company about employee salary or other terms of compensation, either at a specific level or uh, within a range, the so-called wage-fixing agreements. Another form could be when individuals at another company or between competing companies, they agree to refuse to solicit or hire that other company's employee, the so-called no-poaching agreements. Moreover, sharing information with competitors about terms and conditions of employment can also infringe antitrust laws. Even if an individual does not agree explicitly to fix compensation or other terms of employment, exchanging competitively sensitive information could serve as evidence of an implicit illegal agreement. And one example of this could be an HR department in one company sharing with another HR department of another company the wages uh, or the range of wages that will be paying, for example, for marketing personnel. So these type of conversation must be avoided. And as again, as I mentioned, even without an express or implicit agreement on terms of, of compensation among firm, evidence of periodic exchange of current wages, uh, rates, etc., can also put both companies into the area of being infringing competition laws. Also, I want to add something that Competition Authority became very active about uh, in recent years uh, in relation to digital services. Digital economy came under stricter scrutiny in this area. Uh, we have seen, as I said, examples in Africa where competition authorities intervened successfully to save the benefits resulting from competition between digital ride-hailing firms on the supply side, i.e. this of drivers. Uh, court decisions in some countries in the EU and in some states in the US took a further step and qualified self-employed drivers as to be employees. So all this development simply highlights that competition law meant to play a, a greater role in fixing any potential market failures that may result on the demand side of the labor market as a result of practices emanating from employers and their HR departments. Absolutely. And, you know, just speaking generally about ride-hailing platforms, there's obviously the very interesting recent decision that we've seen from the UK Supreme Court uh, on, on the employment side regarding certain rights that Uber workers should enjoy. Uh, so I think this continues to be, you know, in, in the broad scheme of things, a, a very hot topic. 
Absolutely. And if you also have the, the time to check the decision published by the Egyptian competition authorities in relation to the Uber acquisition of Karim assets in Egypt, for example, you will find out that a great part of the decision and the assessment was actually concerned about the potential loss in drivers' benefits. And in that sense, the Egyptian Competition Authority and the Commissar Competition Commission, they both viewed drivers as benefiting from the demand side of a self-employed labor market, whereby competition between firms provides these drivers with greater benefits, with better work conditions that would otherwise be damaged if a competition authority didn't intervene to save them. So in a way or another, they look to employees, or let's call them self-employed drivers, as a consumer of the labor market or as benefiting from competition between different ride-hailing platforms. And in that sense, the competition authorities wanted to ensure that the remuneration and compensation are not damaged, that they are fairly remunerated, and that they are also benefiting from adequate working condition that this platform can offer them. Thank you, Dr. Amerin. You've mentioned Uber's acquisition of Kareem in Egypt, and just segueing into the broader context of mergers and acquisitions, what is the role that you think competition law can play in the labor markets within that context? Actually, a competition law play a big role in the area of merger and acquisition. Actually, in some recent statistics indicate that actually merger and acquisition can take up to 90% of the working time of any competition authority. But in relation to, for example, the prohibitions of no poaching agreement and wage fixing agreement, etc., and the exchange of confidential sensitive information between companies, there is something interesting in the area of merger and acquisition whereby an acquirer, for example, would love to run a due diligence on the target. And in the course of the due diligence, the acquirer may request access, for example, to employees' salaries, etc. There are certain safeguards for the exchange of this type of information. And they are not all the way permitted. There are rooms for exception, yes, but there are but there are also risks in exchanging this type of information in the course of due diligence. It's not uncommon to qualify access to such type of information as ancillary to the main transaction-related work, and in that sense, they might be exempted from the scope of prohibition. But again, it's a very narrow exemption and should be dealt with very carefully. And usually, uh, HR departments are not equipped to deal with this type of exemption, and it's usually advisable that they are assisted in the course of their merger merger and acquisition disclosure uh, process with a competition lawyer to help them share what is specifically necessary to enable an acquirer to conduct the due diligence without necessarily disclosing uh, commercially sensitive information or labor-related sensitive information that may run afoul to competition laws. So would you have any advice that you'd give to HR personnel in terms of how you think they should act when in doubt of the legality of certain conduct or information that they may come across? Generally speaking, companies need to train their HR personnel and professionals on the developments of competition law in this particular area. 
Uh, recently, the United States Department of Justice issued guidelines addressing HR professionals to help them and their companies to understand the scope of risks. However, as mentioned, the guidelines are abstract statements that their application differ from one case to another. Several factors need to be considered, such as the legal and economic context, as well as the nature of the industry in question. So, for example, if we are talking about a specific industry where there, there is a, only one market player and there is a very limited technical expertise among employees, we are in a situation of monopsony whereby there is only potential one buyer for the services of these employees. So it's highly advisable that companies make a reference to competition lawyers to assess their legal and economic context and in order to help them also to, to develop helpful and workable compliance rules that they are revised from time to time to ensure continuous compliance with the development of the law in this area. And it's also worth mentioning that many international organizations also became more vocal on the importance of applying competition and antitrust rule in the area of labor market and how competition law can enhance the labor market and they started providing guidelines also for the application of competition rules in the HR practices. Thank you, Dr. Amir, for that very practical advice and sensitizing our listeners to some of these issues and, and points that they need to watch out for. In closing our, our session today, are there any additional points that you'd like to highlight, perhaps ways in which you think that such risks can be mitigated? Yes, as I mentioned, for example, when companies want to exchange information related to their employment terms and condition, it is highly advisable that certain amount of safeguards to be in place. For example, appointing a neutral third party that manages the exchange, that the exchange involves uh, information that is relatively old, the information is aggregated to protect the identity of the underlying sources and that enough sources are aggregated to prevent competitors from linking particular data to an individual source. But again, I can only mention in this podcast very general lines, and but let's be aware that things differ uh, on the basis of the legal and economic context and the company in question and also the context in which this exchange might take place. So as a general advice, again, companies need to be assisted by lawyers. Companies need to train their HR personnel on best practices under competition law with the assistance of competition lawyers. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, Dr. Emmer. Thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Amir or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law by going to the Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Shemaine Amin, and thanks for listening.